You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer." Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are listening to your word. We want to hear you. We want to see you. So we pray now that you would speak to us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. 
My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, one of the pastors here, I'd love to say hello after the service. Uh, come up and say hello. Did you guys see this moth earlier? I think it's a big moth. I think like on any other Sunday it would have been just fine, but like this plague's Sunday got me a little nervous earlier. And anyway, uh, we're coming to perhaps the most distinctly memorable section in this entire Exodus story. At least it is for younger kids. I remember the very first time that I watched the Ten Commandments. I was probably like a five or six-year-old watching it on TV. And the thing that I remember about that first time watching it was Moses standing out like in this court area with Pharaoh and touching the water with his staff and the whole thing turning to blood. That's what I remember of the first time I ever watched that movie. I also later distinctly remember sitting around the table in my third grade Sunday school class at Denton Bible Church uh, talking about this section, the plagues. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Many of you were leading through the lessons on the plagues of Egypt just a few weeks ago in Christchurch Kids. Uh, my guess is the kids that were listening to you and thinking through that together a couple weeks ago will remember that evening for the rest of their lives. Not necessarily because you were such an amazing teacher, but just because the story is so memorable. It's the nature of the story, and that's perhaps the entire point of this entire episode, that it would be remembered, that Yahweh would be remembered. While the word plague does appear several times throughout these chapters, more often these ten plagues, these events are referred to as signs, signs to the one who sent them. They are pointers pointing to the one who has sent them. And so what are these plagues or what are these signs for? Tonight we're going to work through these chapters, not necessarily chronologically, but to think through the reasons that for these plagues. Why God would act in this way, specifically in these first nine plagues. What are the plagues for? There are probably more, but as I was just thinking through these chapters this week, I came up with five reasons. We're going to, so we're going to think through these in five headings this evening. Five reasons for the plagues. Justice, redemption, worship, remembrance, and preparation. So what are the plagues for? First of all, they are for justice. We're not going to read every word of the text of these plagues from chapters 10 through, or 7 through 10. I think a big picture overview is more than adequate, but let's pick up at the beginning. On the heels of the first sign that we saw last week of Aaron turning his staff into a serpent and then the Pharaoh's magicians doing the same, but then Pharaoh's serpent eating the other serpents and then turning back into a staff, we read this in chapter 7 beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and their pools of waters, so that they may become blood. 
and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. This is weird stuff. But this first plague here is what many scholars have identified as the first plague of the first of three cycles of plagues. It seems like the author has intentionally divided these three cycles. They increase in their intensity, even their altitude. In each cycle, Moses comes to Pharaoh in the morning announcing a new intensity. Their altitude changes. First, they are related in the water and the dust, and then the next three, they move over to the ground level and to the earth, and then they end, the last three, end in the skies. And if this is right, then the author seems to want us to see these three sets of three as building towards the climax of the tenth plague, the angel of death, Passover, as the culminating finale that stands on its own. So what's going on here with this bloody water? Many throughout the years have given a natural explanation to all of these seemingly supernatural acts, like there was a season of extreme flooding somewhere further upriver on the Nile, which stirred up a bunch of silt and red dirt, and as it got down towards the delta where these, uh, these stories are taking place, then the Nile just appeared to be bloody because it was so red with a lot of red mud or something like that. Those dumb, dumb ancient people just misunderstood a natural act to be from the gods or something like that. A couple of things, though. First of all, even if there were natural explanations for all ten of these plagues, you know, like locust swarms throughout history have just completely devastated entire regions of agricultural agricultural crops, does that necessarily mean that God couldn't have been behind them? Like, I've read archaeologists finding evidence of, like, intense meteor fallout near where they think that Sodom and Gomorrah were. That explains why these ancients misunderstood what seemed to be a judgment from the heavens or something like that. Well, what do these folks think that God might have done with Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, devastated it with some, like, heaven rocks that, like, disappeared and then left no archaeological remnants? Like we said last week, God most often uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary purposes. But second of all, and specifically with this plague, flooding and silt runoff happens every single year in the Nile. If this were just red mud in the Nile, Pharaoh would have likely said to Moses, like, seriously? This, is, this happens every year. This is not blood. We know this. It's just mud. You gotta be kidding Instead, it is affecting not just the river, but the entire region, and it's something that the Egyptian magicians cannot recreate on their own. This does not just seem to be mud. It seems to be a very distinct act of God, supernaturally intervening in history. So why the bloody water? The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt, metaphorically speaking, right? Each year, its swelling and flooding would provide irrigation, would provide drinking water, would provide life for Egypt. But it was also the place where in chapter 1, the previous pharaoh had commanded that all of the Hebrew infant sons be thrown into, into their death. The place of death for Israel would now become the place of death for Egypt. Thirst, dead fish, other dead food sources from the river, and just a stench of death 
Life had become death. Same with the frogs, which would then come from the river in the second plague. Instead of life coming from the river, now the horror is just multiplied. Not life, but curse. And this frog plague is not just a, like, I kind of think, like, we kind of think that, hey, that, that plague wouldn't be so bad. You know, there's frogs. Frogs are kind of cute. Uh, you know, when there's one. <laughs> but not like untold countless hordes of frogs where you can't step without squishing and just in your food and in your drinking water and in your face as you sleep. This is a plague that is not just kind of annoying and bothersome, but would eventually become disgusting for the entire country. The rotting carcasses of dead frogs everywhere. Eventually, in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, we read, The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, mounds, mountains of dead frogs, and the land stank. Horrible. The leaders of Israel, a few chapters ago, had been complaining to Moses that Moses had made them, the Hebrews, a stench in the Pharaoh's nostrils. Well, now God is bringing a real and actual stench on Egypt. In chapter 9, Moses takes a handful of soot from the brick kilns, the place where the slaves had been living and working and dying and making their own bricks without straw. Moses grabs some soot from that area. He throws it into the air, and a fine dust goes out over all the land and inflicts uh, festering boils over all of the Egyptians and their livestock. Here's what's going on with all these plagues. There is intentional language. There are intentional themes popping up in these chapters that remind us of Genesis 1 and 2. There is the dust of the ground. There is the beasts of the land. There are the lights in the sky. As much as God was providing goodness and blessing for humanity and creation in Genesis 1 and 2, here in Exodus 7 through 11, he is essentially decreating Egypt under his curse. Everything that he has done in creation, he's now just wiping back. Pharaoh echoes the serpent of Genesis 3. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And so God is cursing Pharaoh and cursing Egypt as he cursed the serpent. Egypt has hated God, has oppressed his people for centuries, and the time for judgment, the time for justice has come. Now, while I realize that this idea might be unsettling for some, the justice or judgment of God, can I, can I ask that we just hang in there uh, and we'll think more specifically about that area, specifically through judgment and justice, through death even, when we get to chapters 11 and 12 with the 10th plague. But the first reason for the plagues is for justice. The evil of Egypt is coming back around on them. And the irony, especially that of the river from chapters, chapter 1 and 2, the river of the Nile would not have been lost on both the Egyptians and, the, and Israel. So a second reason for these plagues is not just to judge Egypt, but also to redeem or deliver Israel. Redemption. Now, when we use the word redemption, we usually mean it to mean like to bring some good out of a bad situation. Like 
Her childhood was such a nightmare, but isn't it wonderful how the Lord redeemed it into something beautiful? Now she's a, a beautiful, godly young woman. Or the guy found a broken old table on the side of the road, and he's worked with it for so long, and he has redeemed it into something awesome. The word, though, really means more of like how when we use it when we say to redeem a coupon, right? You have a coupon for a free sandwich. How do you get the coupon, or how do you get the sandwich? You have the coupon, the person who owns the sandwich then receives the coupon and redeems it. And the sandwich is redeemed and released to you. This is, it's, it's, it's economic language, redeeming something. It buys, it pays for something. The first time that redeem is used in the Bible is Exodus 6.6, 6, where God says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. I will buy you, I will purchase you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God's son, Israel, is owned by another, is owned by someone, not him. And now the father is here to make a payment, to redeem his son out of slavery, to get his son as his own. And the plagues are the payment. He's coming up with like 10 coupons, 10 payments, the coupon which he will use to redeem, to buy, to get, to acquire the thing, not the sandwich, but his own son, Israel. At lunch on Thursday, Dave Ortega and I were having lunch, and Dave was reflecting how often this language of a mighty hand and an outstretched arm appears over and over and over again through the Pentateuch. He had just finished reading Deuteronomy, and he was struck by this language, the language of Exodus 6, where God will redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. And we tend toward thinking of God's hand, his outstretched arm, his mighty hand, as like a shepherding nudge. Right? Like we're, we're, we're veering off the path and he will correct us to keep us on the path. And that is biblical language. That is biblical imagery. And that is good and right to think of God's hand and his arm in that way. But Dave was nailed by the idea that perhaps we most often need God's mighty, his outstretched arm, not to nudge, but to just reach down and grasp and just pull out of a pit, to save and to redeem. He was thinking through, Dave was through the Lord's Prayer, which as it happened, we had already planned to pray together tonight in our profession of faith, that of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, deliver us, from evil with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. Israel did not need their circumstances improved. They did not need better work hours, or fairer compensation. Israel did not need nicer houses or chariots. They didn't need a mere change of location, better politicians. They didn't need better food or better health care. While all of those things would have been nice, would have been welcomed, what they needed was deliverance from their slavery. They needed redemption. They needed freedom. This was true then, and it's just as true now. Everything that we've talked about in the last several weeks, that thinking about free will, thinking about decision-making, applies here. I mentioned Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, a couple of weeks ago, and this is a good description. Our decision-making, our 
will, our desires, are in such bondage. They are capable of choosing freely, but are incapable of choosing the good, are incapable of choosing the glories and joy of Christ. Our will is in such slavery and opposition to the Lord that we must be the recipients of God's outstretched, mighty hand who comes and his salvation is not something that we cooperate in, but is something that he does to his people. He reaches out and saves them. He redeems them. Which is exactly what Paul is reflecting on as he is encouraging the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee sexual immorality. He's encouraging them to think deeply on sex, what it is, what it's for. And then he says, 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. God bought you. So glorify God in your body. We earlier sang this evening, the merits of your great high priest have what? Have bought your liberty. He didn't just like smash down uh, the bad guys holding you in captive or in captivity. That's true. He disarmed them, but he also purchased you, if you're a Christian, by his blood, with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He purchased you with the payment of his own blood. God has not just saved individual Christians that they might be forgiven of their sins and then just continue on in their slavery. It's like if God had plagued Egypt these ten times, all of these signs and wonders and plagues had happened, and then Israel just stayed in Egypt in their bondage. To stay, to choose, to stay under their former masters, to stay in doubt, in sin, in self-condemnation. We also sang in that song, Jesus has set you free. Jesus, all our trust is in your blood. This is what we trust and hope in. And our freedom is, is, is the result God is redeeming Israel in these plagues and he has redeemed his church, not just from slavery, but to freedom, to life, to holiness, to joy. So the same plagues are, on the one hand, acts of judgment against Egypt, but on the other hand, at the exact same time, they are acts of freedom for Israel. Like the same shepherd, shepherd staff can, at one hand, beat off terribly wicked and horribly scary predators, right? But at the same time, be a nurturing nudge to his sheep. And certainly, the cross comes to us in the same way as simultaneous judgment and life. As Paul says, as we've already heard this evening in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is folly, it is wisdom, it is death, it is salvation. At the same time, in the same act, God is focused here in his judgment. He is focused in his redemption of his people. Many of the plagues affect Egypt, but they don't affect Israel. Why? Is it because Israel has like, worshipped God extremely well for 400 years? They have an incredibly impressive spiritual resume? Is it because there isn't something inherently special about them, or they are more spiritually aware of the God of creation? 
They've maybe prayed some prayer that the Egyptians haven't prayed. No, God is focused in his judgment and redemption because he is remembering his covenant promises. God would later and say in Deuteronomy 7, he's speaking to Israel before they are about to go into the land. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's nothing inherently special about Israel that he is choosing to save them, but it is because of his love for them. It is because of his covenant promises to their great-grandfathers that he is saving them. So the plagues come from the mighty hand of God for justice, for redemption, and now third, for worship. You already heard Marianne read from chapter 9, but listen to verses 13 through 17, or verses 13 through 16 again. Listen to what God tells Pharaoh. Here is a very direct reason for all of this, for all of these plagues, and specifically this seventh plague of hail. God is going to tell Pharaoh exactly why he's doing all of this. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that, they, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God just said, and this, what, what I just read, what you just heard might be kind of troubling to some of you if you'd never heard that before. What God just said is that in some ways, all of this is just a show. Like he could have been done with this already. He could have done all this with one plague. He could have done this without Moses. Just killed all the Egyptians. So what in the world? All this is just a show? A couple of nights ago, I, with my kids, showed them the Truman Show for the first time. I love the Truman Show. But as I told them after the movie, I'm pretty sure that the writer of the Truman Show hated God at the time that he or she wrote this movie, hated God. Because here's the movie, the creator who rules from the moon, from the heavens, his name is Christoph, Christ-off, who the creator, he tyrannically rules the world of Truman. He puts all kinds of suffering into Truman's life because he knows that it will make for a good story. And the only way for Truman to be free is to break out from under the oppressive thumb of the creator. Me and my kids had a conversation about that after the movie. Is that reality? Is that true? Is it true that, the, uh, that God is there to just make some weird things happen in our life so that we might just know about him and just experience some emotions that we might not have otherwise experienced? No. First of all, God is not like us. God is not Ed Harris. Ed Harris, the creator, is selfish. He is vindictive. 
He is out of control with his emotions. He is not himself the source of joy and life. He's just trying to manufacture and manipulate situations so that it makes for an interesting story. He is using others and by doing so is acting selfishly, selfishly, sinfully. But for God to want others to know him, for want, to want the world to know him is fundamentally different than the Ed Harris creator. It is for the joy and flourishing of humanity that when they acknowledge, when they obey, when they love God, they experience this life that they were always meant to know and to experience. The only joy to full and rich joy to be found is actually in reference to the Creator. The way to freedom is to know and is to live in reference to the Creator, not by breaking free from the Creator like Truman Burbank. Beginning in chapter 14, throughout much of the rest of Exodus, God's glory is going to become one of the most major themes throughout the rest of the book. His glory, literally his, his heaviness, God's heaviness, his weight. It isn't something that God is selfishly grasping after. He just wants more of it and he's just wanting to gobble up as much glory as he can for himself. No, he, it's something that he already inherently has. He is inherently heavy, weighty. And it is good that we should know, that we should reference ourselves to that heaviness. It's kind of like the way that the Sandia Mountains are like kind of the, the gravitational center of our city. Not necessarily the geographic center, but it is kind of the way that we orient ourselves in the city. The, the way that we know which way is east and west. Well, where's the mountain? It is the gravitational center. It, it has the glory, the, the weight of Albuquerque. And in the same way, God is that for creation. God has created humanity, us, his image bearers, those who he, whom he has delegated his authority to rule on earth to be directional pointers to the creator, to directional pointers to the gravitational good, the gravitational wonder, the gravitational joy and life of the universe. And so it is not a selfish thing that God wants us to know him. Because God, as the source of all joy in the universe, wants us to have the highest amount of joy possible. And yet humans, and even false gods, are working their hardest to distract from this weighty glory of God. In Egypt, there is an entire pantheon of gods. And Yahweh here is methodically and systematically disarming and then humiliating the Egyptian gods. Beginning in the first plague, Egyptians would have likely thought of Hapi, the god of the Nile. And immediately following that, Heket, the fertility goddess who had the head of a frog, is humiliated. Later, Apis, the bull god of strength, couldn't do anything to stop the death of the Egyptian livestock. Newt, the sky goddess, she couldn't stop the hail. And Osiris, the god of death, is also the god of the agricultural death and rebirth of Egyptian crops. He couldn't prevent locusts from destroying these crops. And then lastly, Ra, the sun god, the one who is thought to be the king of the Egyptian gods, cannot do anything 
to stop Yahweh from bringing darkness. He has no power over Yahweh. When Moses first strolled into Egypt and said, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Perhaps it's not, we don't necessarily have to blame Pharaoh so much immediately and uh, at the beginning, because he's like, who is Yahweh? He's like some desert god. He's some regional desert god. Most, most countries, most nations would have uh, had regional gods, and regional gods don't go into other regions. They're the god of this particular region. Yahweh can't just roll into Egypt and claim authority, Pharaoh thinks. He doesn't belong here. And seriously, the gods of Egypt are the most powerful gods on the planet. Just look at us. Look at our empire. And seriously, if you think Yahweh, I'm going to listen to Yahweh, and you're saying that he is powerful because he's your God? You're slaves. You have no power. He has no power. Well, this is Yahweh's announcement to humanity that Yahweh is the God of all creation. These gods of Egypt may have power, but they are not rivals. And if God is superior to all of the rest of the gods, if he is superior to the gods of the most powerful nation on earth, then the nations of the earth should know that they owe him their worship as well. And even Egypt, God is showing himself powerful over Egypt, that even Egypt might know and worship him as some we'll see, do. as They leave their Egyptian gods and they leave with Israel to go out into the wilderness to worship Yahweh. These plagues are not an out-of-control wave of divine emotion. They're not Ed Harris just pounding wave after wave after wave because he knows he's actually getting angry at his creation, Truman. No, these are calculated, they are precise, and they are controlled. These plagues begin exactly when Moses says they will begin, and then they end and recede exactly when Moses says that they will end. Yahweh is the God of creation and of decreation. He is doing this to show his power and his glory over the world. And yet, the signs are still not enough for Pharaoh to obey. He's not persuaded. Perhaps for a time, as you heard in our reading earlier, he's perhaps persuaded for a time, I've sinned, I'm going to let them go, but then he hardens his heart, or God hardens his heart, or both, and he's right back at it. But yet, how often are we the same way? God has shown himself to be the God of creation and of life. We understand, we've seen, we've read, we've thought through that Christ has risen from the grave. We think through stories of men and women who were adamantly opposed to the spread of the gospel of Christ, and yet seeing him, They become Christians themselves. The spread of Christianity against all historical and economic odds of the day throughout the world, which likely has no explanation other than that the Holy Spirit of God is spreading his glory throughout the nations. All of these things, not to mention the signs and wonders that we've seen in our own lives, the false gods that God has freed us from and we're seeing growth in the signs and wonders of life that we're seeing in and amongst our church and yet oftentimes they can still not be enough we're still tempted to demand more yeah that was good but i need more 
to doubt God's promises of deliverance, to wonder if he actually is the God of deliverance, of redemption, to wonder if he actually has more power than death, than anxiety, than doubt. And we're tempted to worship the pantheon of American gods, the pantheon of the American gods of money and of sex and of power, calling us back, calling us back to bondage, even though we have seen God's power over them. And yet Christ has disarmed and humiliated these gods in his weakness, in his humility, in his suffering, and of even promising life and joy for us through death and through pain and through suffering. And yet his display of death and of humility is, in fact, a display of power. It is a display of power over sin, of a display of power over death, of power over the curse, which had formerly held us in bondage. Why? Why is he displaying his power, which looks like weakness? Why? That we might worship him, that we might know him and love him, that we might worship him, not just singing songs for 20 or 25 minutes once a week on Sunday afternoons together, That's one small way that we do worship. It's an important way that we worship in a gathered sense, but that we worship in whatever we do, that we are living lives of freedom, living lives of gratitude, that we might live our lives in reference to the gravitational center of the universe, living our lives in loving our neighbor and of loving God. The plagues, the cross, are meant are designed for our worship and are meant for our joy, which gets us to our final two reasons for the plagues. Remembrance and preparation. Remembrance. Over and over and over again in the Psalms and the prophets, Israel is reflecting on the plagues. You just read through the Old Testament, you would be floored by how many times these plagues keep popping up. In Psalm 105, the psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And why should they rejoice? What kinds of works should they tell tell to the nations? What are they to tell? Well, the plagues. The psalmist goes on in Psalm 105 and goes through all of them. He reflects on the plagues. When things don't look like God is for us, well, remember the covenant that he has made. Remember the covenant that he has promised of redemption and of deliverance. When things don't look like God is powerful, remember his power. He has shown himself to be great, shown himself to be greatly praised, even in times that we don't think that he is, when our circumstances might suggest otherwise. Don't base your understanding, don't base your experiential trust in God based on what you observe in the moment. God is not some microbe to be observed and tested in a petri dish just on the evidence that you have before you right now. Remember what he has done. Remember his love for you in the cross. Remember his power there. The plagues were meant to be a watershed moment, a high point moment in Israel's history, a high point moment of God's action for his people. 
These plagues were meant to be a memorable, unforgettable Sunday school lesson, but they were also meant to be like a a high mountaintop that as Israel gets throughout its history further and further and further away from these plagues over valleys and rivers and plains and fields, yet they can still look back and see amongst the clouds that moment of God's action in history, of God's action of power and of deliverance and of redemption. This something for them to look back and remember and see, to never forget. And yet, at the same time, that mountain was never meant to be the place of their ultimate dwelling. That mountain was also meant to propel them forward. And so lastly, the plagues were meant for preparation. Next Sunday, uh, well, this week, Clint and I are going to be at the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham. We'd really ask you to pray for us and pray for that entire meeting. We'll, we'll be sure to fill you in on some of the things that go on from there. But from then, from, from Birmingham on Thursday, I'm going to go and meet my family at, with Marcy's in-laws in Tampa. So I'm not going to be here on Sunday, next Sunday. But I'm really excited to hear Spencer Brown, the pastor of Center City Church, to preach from Revelation 19 next week, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And throughout the book of Revelation, the plagues make a return appearance over and over and over again. The plagues are not just a past event, but the plagues are a future one. They are signs of a coming time where God will, where God will finally and fully judge his enemies forever, where God will finally and fully deliver his people out from their doubt, from their anxiety, from their sin forever, that they might worship Christ fully. These ten plagues in Egypt are the large stone, a very large stone, that are dropped in like an Egyptian lake, and then they start to ripple and gain momentum and speed and power that these waves might crash on the shores of the entire world. And yet... As we'll continue to think about when we get to chapters 11 and 12 in two weeks, the final plague, the plague of death, the plague which comes with Passover, will find its newness in the cross of Christ, will find its newness in the Lord's Supper, which even itself is an act of remembrance and of preparation, which points us and prepares us for Revelation 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can't wait. I'm not going to be able to be here with you guys next Sunday, but like on Monday morning, I can't wait to listen to that sermon on the podcast. Then as we prepare to come back, do things a little bit out of order, do Revelation 19, and then go back in time to the Passover. But I can't wait to think through these themes together, that the God of Israel has acted really, truly in history. He has interjected himself in the life of this world. The natural world of opposition and bondage has been supernaturally invaded by Yahweh, by the God of the universe. He invaded Egypt by using gnats and frogs, locusts and hail to display his power, but he would later invade in Bethlehem, not using cows and sheep and donkeys as his display of power, but being born amongst them, that he might display his humility. He 
He invaded Egypt by blotting out the sun to show his anger against sin and his strength against the false gods. And yet he would later blot out the sun in Jerusalem in taking the sin of the world on himself, showing his strength over death. So just as the plagues were the mountaintop of the past, pushing Israel forward, the cross of Christ on the mount of the skull is the moment that we look back on in remembrance. The display of God's power, of his deliverance and of his salvation, but then yet points us forward into the, for, the future glory of Christ, the final place of peace and of rest. I hope Exodus is being helpful for you, is giving you a bigger picture of God's glory, of his hugeness, of his vastness, and yet of his particular and redeeming love for his people. So let's pray that these acts in history would actually be all the evidences that we need to trust in his care for this world and his people. Oh oh God, we, we do pray We recognize your power, your strength. We recognize not only your ability to save, but your desire to do so. God, keep us. Keep keeping us by your strong and outstretched arm. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave you in doubt and in anxiety and in self-condemnation and in false worship and in fear. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to constantly look back to the high mountaintop of the cross of your love and of your redemption of your people, how you have bought us with a price, the price of your own blood, and now you own us, which is the best place that we could possibly be, the place of true and real freedom. And then help us to look forward to the culmination of all things. You are greater than all the gods. Even when our lives and our hearts suggest that we don't believe that, We profess here tonight, having our hearts and our eyes reoriented to your greatness and to your love for us, we profess in faith that you are, Lord, we want to believe, even help us now in our unbelief. You are great and greatly to be praised. We love you, God. Help us to love you more. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.